Some of you uh, know this about me, some of you don't, but I, I kind of like spicy food. Um, not, not a little bit spicy, I, usually a lot of spicy. I go to like an Indian food place or a Thai food place, and I'm like, can you make it extra, extra, extra spicy? And they always look at me like, well, you're crazy. Um, but I like spicy food, especially Thai food and, and Indian food, right? Um, and I like it so much that, in fact, one, one birthday, my, my wife gave me a basket full of spices, now, that's kind of a, a different twist, isn't it? You know, uh, a wife giving husband stuff to cook. But I was actually super excited. All those, those strange spices that you don't usually have in your spice cabinet, car, cardamom and garam masala and turmeric and Indian chili powder. That's the hot stuff. That's the best stuff there is. Uh, well, I, um, I took these bags of, of, uh, of spices, and I, I wanted to label them and make them look good. And so I got these, these little vitamin bottles, plastic vitamin bottles from my father-in-law, who's a dentist. And I, um, I put all the spices in those nice, nice neat little um, plastic jars. And then I got a labeler and I labeled all of my spices. It's a culinary wonder, actually. If you go to one of my, I'm, I'm only given one cabinet by my wife, but you open it up and there they are, right there, all the spices with all their little labels and stuff. And uh, I don't know, probably three years ago or so, um, my daughter, Allie, she's fifth or sixth grade at the time. She says, Dad, she looks at the Indian chili powder. She goes, Dad, you spelled chili wrong. <laughs> I said, no, I didn't. And uh, she says, no, y- you did. And I said, no, I didn't. I'm like, I've got a gazillion more years of school than you. I know how to spell chili. And, uh, and she says, no, chili only has one L. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. It has two L's. And she's like, no, it has one L. And I'm like, no. It has two L's. And, you know, pulled out my phone, went to the Webster's Dictionary online. Sure enough, one L. Completely showed up by a fifth or sixth grader. And, um, and I have been eating humble pie ever since. Um, she's like, that's not chili. That's chillily. And, uh, and even to this day, it's like, you're going to have some more chillily powder, Dad? It's just her way of knocking me off my pedestal. And, and she actually, she just last week, she got me on cayenne, too. She goes, Dad, you spelled cayenne wrong. And I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> she said, yes, you did. I looked it up, and I'm like, oh! And I know I shouldn't take on the spelling bee person. I mean, she was good at spelling. I should just say, yes, <laughs> I spelled it wrong. Humble pie. It's a difficult thing to be humbled when you think you're just so smart and bright and know how to spell chili or cayenne pepper. Um, well, as you can probably guess from the, from the text that I mentioned, uh, Philippians 2, verse 8, we're going to talk about humility this morning, um, in particular, humility as displayed and defined in the life of Jesus. Now, before I talk about the subject, I just need to make two things clear. One is that I do not live up to this message. Um, I, like you, am, am a pilgrim. In fact, I, I could say that I really don't live up to any of the messages that I, I preach, but I aspire by the grace of God um, to be shaped and, and desire to, to be a humble person or to live out um, what Jesus teaches us in the Word. Um, but I do fall far short. So let the message stand on its own, um, regardless of, of me. I'm a fallen man like you. Uh, the second thing is that the topic of humility, of course, is a big topic. From the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, I mean, you just have this constant theme of things like God resists the proud. That's a scary thing. But he gives grace to the humble. Um, that's how indispensable and, and important the idea of humility is. Or um, the psalm that says, the Lord lifts up the humble, but he casts the wicked or the arrogant to the ground. Um, that's from beginning to end. So we as God's people um, ought to 
uh, nurture and cherish this thing called humility, without which there is neither the ability to love nor trust. It's kind of at the heart of both of those things, humility at the heart of both faith and love. So it's a big topic. I just want to simply narrowly focus on just one aspect of it in verse 8 of Philippians. Um, Jesus is by definition humility, um, and he is the defining um, picture as to what it truly looks like and the motivation behind humility. So let me um, read this for you. We looked at verses 6 and 7 last week of Philippians 2. As I mentioned, 6 through 11 are kind of what many believe to be an ancient hymn that the Apostle Paul has kind of sewn into this letter um, because it has a certain amount of rhythm and meter and um, alliteration. And he's woven it in, something that probably early Christians either spoke together or sung together. And we looked at just the first part, 6 and 7, last week. And we're just going to look at verse 8, which just kind of gets down to the very climax or the deepest part of this hymn. To get us in the groove, let me just read. We're going to look at verse 8, but I want to include 6, 7 so you get the flow. Beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on here to explain or define or uh, expound on Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Here's the part we're focusing on. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's two main verbs in those verses. Um, Emptied himself is part one, and humbled himself is kind of part two. Verse seven, emptied himself, talks about, or it um, carries that idea of the gargantuan, immeasurable step of Jesus, though in the form of God, became human. That is God putting on human skin. That is he emptied himself. That's part one, or step one. Step two is going from man to cross. That the man, Jesus, the God-man, Jesus, um, humbled himself to the point of the cross. So it's that kind of second step that we look at this morning. Just those verses. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Those three lines there um, express both the essence of humility and um, how humility expresses itself. So those two words are kind of the two points this morning, the essence of humility and the expression of humility. There's a lot of ideas as to what humility is, you know. I remember growing up watching TV thinking uh, humility is Kwai Chan Kane, you know, that that's a sense of humility. It's just kind of a quiet, um, strong, but peaceful um, walk of life or, or disposition. For the Christian, we've got to ask, okay, what really is humility? And here we find it both um, defined and expressed in the life of Jesus, the essence and the expression of it. The essence of it, Um, is what I will call, in my own words, voluntary self-denial. Voluntary self-denial. It's pretty clear that that's that's what's in view here because it says he humbled himself. No one else humbled him. It was a voluntary free choice on his part to humble himself. That's part of the essence of true humility. It is, is a voluntary act of the will to lower oneself beneath another. 
uh, a kind of humility that's enforced or forced upon a person is not true humility. Um, a humility that you wear around you like a cloak which hides a prideful heart that wants to be seen as humble but in fact is, uh, wants attention, that is not true humility. Humility arises from a voluntary act of the will to lower oneself beneath another person. Or another way of saying it is that Jesus um, voluntarily gave up his rights. We in America are big on rights. It's like a fight for your rights. Well, Jesus had a right to justice. He had a right to a lot of things, which he surrendered voluntarily, humbling himself for you and me. Now, that simple idea of humility being voluntary self-denial, if, if we could sprinkle that into our marriages and families in our church, then our relationships would be revolutionized if people voluntarily humbled themselves without being forced or prompted to. Uh, imagine with me a, a married couple, a young married couple, um, having an argument over where they're going to spend Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving. Both parties want to spend it with their respective families, and so they start to amass, like good lawyers, arguments on both sides and have a big fight as to where they're going to spend the holidays. Well, we don't have the money to go to your family, so we're going to go to my family. Or your mother-in-law is overbearing. She has bad breath and a mustache. We're not going to go to your family. You know, you can go right on down the line, all the arguments that people stack in their favor. And essentially what, well, there's a lot of leaves up here. Um, essentially what each party is doing is they're taking their stand, insisting on their own, what you might think of as self-centered rights. We're going to my family. Another party, I'm going to my family. And... Oftentimes, what will happen is the two will argue, and the one who gives up loses the fight, right? The one who, who, who perseveres to the end, who just continues to argue, 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 usually ends up winning, but not because the other person was necessarily humble. They just gave up, and what ends up happening is they drive a sense of deep resentment deep into their heart, and both parties lose, even though there is a quote-unquote winner, because neither one has truly, truly, voluntarily, voluntarily denied themselves the other. Now, if both parties, if Philippians 6 to 8 was sprinkled in, it's like, why don't both of you like voluntarily lay aside your agenda? Uh, now, you know this is easier said than done. I want to get to how in a moment. But if both parties are actually willing to say, hey, you know what, let's, let's just lay these things aside and let's talk about what's best for the family. Let's talk about a reasonable, workable situation where I can, I can love you and you can love me and we can, we can share. What's best for you? What's best for me? What's best for our kids? What's best for our in-laws? And then to come to a conclusion. That's, that's, that's how, how self-denial, voluntary self-denial, can revolutionize a conversation or a decision or where you're going to go spend the holiday. Now, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, that works. Well, if one person, or both people do it, but what happens if... If only one party, and not just in marriage, but any, any relationship, if one humbles themselves voluntarily, but the other doesn't, then they become kind of a doormat. It's easy to just get steamrolled. And what I'd like to say to you, to all of us, I think it, it's biblical, is that the, there are times when humble self-denial, voluntary self-denial has to say no. Because it's not good for either party to just be steamrolled. It's not loving to say, go ahead, steamroll over me. Rather, it's in the best interest sometimes of the other party to actually say no. 
You know, there's a, um, I'm intrigued by, by um, one of the events that happened in the Apostle Paul's life in the town of Philippi. You know, he was, uh, he was arrested, thrown into prison, and beaten. And yet he was a Roman citizen. And it's interesting is that he did not insist on his rights. He's a Roman. He shouldn't have been beaten apart from uh, a trial. But he didn't insist on his rights. And in, in one sense, he, he gave in and said, okay, I'll, I'm willing to suffer. And I think it's because he knew his suffering would benefit other people. But when they found out he was a Rome, Roman uh, citizen, later on, they wanted to quietly usher him out of the town because they realized they did something illegal. And at this point, he insists on his rights. Now he's fighting for his rights, but not for his sake. He wants to stay in town to preach the gospel. He said yes in one sense and no in another sense, both motivated by voluntary self-denial. What's best for the other party? Not only is this fundamental to to true loving relationships, this voluntary self-denial, but it's beautiful if you think about it. Imagine you parents out there, imagine your teenager coming up and going, Mom, please, can I scrub the toilets and clean the bathroom for you? You know, taking that place of one of the dirtiest jobs in the house. Well, I think most of us probably have a heart attack and epileptic seizure and stroke and die. Just from what? You want to clean the bathrooms? Voluntary self-denial. It's, it's a beautiful thing when someone does that. And that's part of the beauty of us living out our Christianity in the way that Jesus did. He humbled himself. Voluntary self-denial is a beautiful, um, relationally healthy, redeeming, healing thing. So that's kind of part one. We might call it the essence of humility. Voluntary self-denial. Line two and three at the end there shows us or tells us how Jesus expressed his humility, how he expressed it, what form it takes. That is, by becoming obedient to the point of death. That is, utter obedience. It says by there, he humbled himself by. It's expressing the manner in which his Humility showed itself in voluntary obedience to his father as he submitted or surrendered his will to the will of his father. Put himself in submission. That is how humility expresses itself. The voluntary self-denial willing to obey or surrender your will to the will of another and obey. Now, as I pondered this, I realized, you know what, this whole concept of that Jesus obeyed as an expression of humility, I realized this kind of hits us in two ways. It challenges us in our culture, and it challenges us, some of us, in our theology. I probably don't have to tell you that we live in a, in, in a culture that is increasingly anti-authoritarian. People don't want to be told what to do. We have taken the idea of the land of the free and redefined freedom that you can pretty much do whatever you want. And the idea of obeying or submitting is something that makes the hair on some people's neck bristle up, despite the fact that it's found all the way through the Scripture. I say that word obey in a context of a marriage ceremony, and all of a sudden everybody's like having a conniption because we don't like that word, because we often associate it with 
subjugation, domination, slavery, or the contradiction of freedom. As if obeying and freedom are mutually exclusive, contradictory ideas. That's why in our culture there is a a knee-jerk reaction to the idea of obedience. The Bible holds those things together as inseparable partners. Obedience and freedom. And without obedience, there is no true freedom. Or, it's a bit clumsy illustration, but... I want you to, I want to reclaim this word, it, 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 at least get us thinking about it, obey. You know, a fish, for example. God designed a fish to live in water. It's God's will that a fish live in water, at least the fish that I know of. Um, one might say that the fish is obedient by staying in the water. Because it's just by design, he's supposed to swim in the water. Well, one can imagine if a fish could think, the fish going, you know what, I am so tired of this enslaving water. I am going to set myself free from the limitations of this water, and I'm going to flip myself up on the shore and live in the fresh air. The fish launches itself out of the water, ends up on the side of a beach thinking it's free, only to realize he's now suffocating and dying. Sometimes, in fact, sin idea is that reaching for freedom, we find death. That was Adam. Reaching for the freedom of knowledge of good and evil, what he got in return was death. It's not freedom. Actually, obedience, fish realizing, you know what, I was meant to live in the water. And in that water, in that will, there's freedom. But our culture has severed that. We need to recognize that the freedom, true freedom, comes from true obedience, um, voluntary, humbling ourselves before and underneath the submission of God who loves us. But it also hits us in, um, in kind of a theological way, too, because oftentimes people will associate obedience or obeying with legalism or works righteousness. Don't tell me about obedience. Now you're going to tell me I'm going to have to live under the law or I'm going to be you're a legalist for telling me that there needs to be obedience. And, and that, too, is a huge mis- misnomer, misunderstanding, a distorted theology, because here Jesus prays. Our salvation comes down to the simple fact that he voluntarily self-denied and he submitted himself to the will of the Father. How can that be in any way, shape, or form legalism? It's a beautiful thing. And there needs to be a recapturing of obedience as a beautiful expression of our trust in the Lord. Because that's really where true obedience comes from. True obedience is never legalistic. True obedience comes from a heart that says God loves me and knows what's best for me and I'm willing to submit myself in faith and because I know he loves me and I love him in return. That obedience is an expression of humility. And make no mistake about it. Disobedience is an expression of what? Arrogance. It is. I look back on my teenage years and I can remember my mom telling me and encouraging me not to date girls who don't go to church, non-Christians. You know, come home and tell, hey, mom, I'm dating this girl named Chris. Her first question out of her mouth would be, is Chris a Christian? She go to church? You know, and make up some kind of answer like, well, I think so, maybe once or twice in her lifetime. You know, stretch the word Christianity over anything. And I, you know, my mom would say, Danny, you know, that's really not a, not a good thing. And, um, you know, I, quite honestly, back in those days, I thought my mom was a bit of a prude, very narrow-minded, 
So uh, I kind of made up my own mind that it's, it's okay to have an open season, you know? And a lot of the girls that I dated in high school, contrary to my mother's advice, were Philistine girls, you know? Um, girls that didn't love the Lord. And as a result, in the harshness of some of the consequences that came out of my ignorant arrogance, there was a lot of pain involved, a lot of mistakes made. I realized that at that moment, I wasn't trusting that my mom was both wiser and that she really, really did love my soul. That an expression of my trust in her love and wisdom is for me to say, okay, I, I trust you no more than me. Um, you love me, and uh, so I'm going to surrender myself to you in faith. Where there's disobedience, there's no humility. It comes from arrogance. That's where it comes from. And that, that to me is a, wow, got to kind of remember that. That's kind of a, a kind of slap in the face, perhaps. I'm not arrogant, but I'm being disobedient. Yes, we are. That's how humility in Jesus' example expresses itself. And that's how, if we're truly humble people, voluntarily denying ourselves, that's how it will express itself as well. An increasing submission to the good word of the Lord. That's humility. That's how it's expressed. Now, how far did his obedience go? Well, answer is all the way. That's just that last part. Became, becoming obedient to the point of death. That's ultimate. And then the next part is to bring about or to remind us of the shame of that death. Even death on a cross. And we have, in our use of the word cross, have so sanitized it and familiarized ourselves with it that we don't feel the obscenity of it that it still is described, the whole idea of crucifixion of a man hanging on a bloody stick um, is still described by historians as the most loathsome and degrading ways to die. Stripped naked, um, nailed to a, to, a, to a rough post-Roman crucifix to die for all to see a, lo- a slow, agonizing death in public. I... I didn't realize this until I was just doing a little more historical research, but um, what I didn't know is that the word cross in Roman culture, especially the polite Roman culture, was an obscene word. You didn't even talk about it in family dinners. It's like someone saying the word slut. Yes, I did just say that to get the point across. It's not a word that you just use because it, 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 it's so degrading and it's so um, repulsive to some, but the word cross had that sense of repulsion to it. And to just stop for a moment and recognize where we have come. That Jesus in the form of God, you know, living in the unapproachable heights of divinity, has not only become a man, but in a man, humbled himself in obedience to the most shameful of deaths as criminals stripped naked on a post. That's how far. And that is Humility. That is the essence of humility, and it is how humility expresses itself, that we 
We express it by our voluntary obedience to the Lord because we trust him. Now, the deep question is, each of us has to wrestle with or, or think through. So how, how, how do, how, okay, Dan, I hear you. Uh, what you said is it's a voluntary self-denial, and it expresses itself in um, utter obedience. How, do, how, how, does, how does my heart incline to be humble? I don't know how about you, but as soon as, my, my, as soon as I think I got pride handled in one area, it pops out in another. You know? It's like playing a carnival game. It just keeps popping up. And the question is, how is the heart humbled? How do we do the first part? And that is want, the voluntary part, to actually self-deny. And I think Paul answers the question for us as a whole. He brings us to the cross. That is seeing the height and down to the depth of the cross, it, it creates a sense, if we really get what he did, and if we are amazed and we feel a sense of deep gratitude and, and um, understanding of what he did, it has the forming effect of actually humbling our hearts. As he brings us right straight to the cross. That's the whole point of this chapter. He wants, to sh- wants the, the, the people of Philippi and the people of Parkway to, to be humble. So what does he do? do? He doesn't just tell us, be humble. He says, be humble. And by the way, check this out. Look what Jesus did for you. As if our hearts are supposed to break with a sense of grateful humility, like God would do that for me, the prideful, sinful Dan Deckard, and, and the prideful, sinful Parkway people. Like He, he would do that? You know what? You know what that is? That's called humility. And that's what, where it comes from. Beholding God become man crucified. It humbles our hearts. That's why we have to come back over and over and over again. And when we come to Good Friday, it should have that breaking effect again. Not in a negative way, but in a positive way, a joyful brokenness. Reminds me of a song that we sing once in a while. It's played on Caleb. First time I heard it, I got... I thought, that's a good song. Jeremy Riddle, you know. Um, at the cross, you beckon me. Know that song? You beckon me. Um, you draw me gently to my knees. So you come to the cross and see, and he gently brings us to our knees. Lost in words, lost in love, sweetly broken, holy surrender. That's the effect that the cross is supposed to have on the Christian life, and you want to know where to go to, to, to humble your heart. It's to come back to that place at the cross. You beckon me. And this morning, we, we come to the table. We're coming to the cross, and he's beckoning us through the, through the juice and through the bread, symbols of his life poured out on that obscene Roman cross. And I believe that the Holy Spirit would want us to humble ourselves and be humbled by what we take. That a God so high would stoop so low to wash the feet of people who don't deserve it. So my prayer for you and my encouragement to you in preparation for partaking of communion on this beginning of Holy Week is to stop and if there are any strongholds of pride in your life, either between you and the Lord or you and your spouse or you and your family or someone else in the church to make sure that there's a a confession and recognition that that is completely contrary to to the cross.
The Lord's beckoning you. And this should bring us to a place of being sweetly broken. And if you're, you know, you're living in a way that is kind of a hard-hearted disobedience and you know it, just recognize where that comes from. It doesn't come from true freedom. It comes from the fact that you're still living in arrogance. So let, let's let this morning just let, at, at the cross, he beckoned me. Um, let's let the Holy Spirit humble our hearts in the way that um, we need. Uh, if you're new with us and you haven't partaken of communion with us, um, John's going to, and the worship team, are going to sing a couple of songs. If you're a follower of Christ, um, then come as you will when the music plays, and um, you can take it back, take it with your family, take it by yourself. Some people have taken it on the stairs kneeling. Um, but this is time for us to come to the cross, and hopefully, by the Spirit of God, allow uh, Philippians 2.8 to take um, hold of us this morning. As I pray, if I could have those who are um, uh, serving communion come forward, um, I would appreciate it. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, right now we, we ask that you would speak, that you would break, shatter pride. Give us the capacity to see, not just with our minds, but our hearts, the, the massive, incomprehensible humiliation that you went through on our behalf because you love us and wanted to serve our deepest needs. And in understanding that with our hearts, Lord, please just bring us to a place of being sweetly broken. In Jesus' name.